Welcome to BioCentury This Week, the podcast with BioCentury's editorial team. I'm Jeff Cranmer, an executive editor here at BioCentury, and joining me today are my colleagues... Simone Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. I'm Stephen Hansen, Director of Biopharma Intelligence. And Karen koch tesman Director of Biopharma Intelligence. On today's podcast, biotech indexes are on the rise. There's a recovery around the corner. Next generation gene editing at ASH. And we'll talk 2023 picks and some 2024 predictions. But first, next March, it's right around the corner, BioCentury and Bay Helix are bringing the third East-West Summit to Singapore. Join us for two plus days of C-level networking, partnering, and debate. You can learn more at BioCenturyEastWest.com. And if you are a biotech that would be interested in presenting at the conference, feel free to reach out to me. Okay, Stephen, biotech indexes spiked last week after the Fed signaled rate cuts in 2024, and that came on top of what's been something of a uh, a little bit of a run here the past few weeks. What what's behind all this? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Yeah, that Fed meeting that you, that you mentioned sort of came right in the middle of uh, all of my discussions with investors and bankers getting ready for the new year, and. In those conversations, the biggest factor that everyone was talking about that would influence the direction of biopharma was the interest rates. So that came up every time and dominated the conversation in a lot of in a lot of cases. So, I mean, we all know biotech is capital intensive. You know, companies have to survive long periods. You know, with an unclear view on the future of of revenues. So, cost of capital, you know, makes biotech sensitive to interest rates, but on the flip side, you know, interest rates also sort of influence the level of risk that generalist investors are willing to take. So in a rising interest rate environment, generalists are tend to be much more risk off mentality. So biotech is very much a place where they, they become underweight. Um, so that Fed decision really sort of was the first kind of real clear signal for investors that the expectations are now, you know, that we're going to be potentially entering a falling rate environment next year. And so that then triggered sort of a potential shift in risk appetite for generalists that could see them potentially increase their exposure to the sector. So, Stephen, why should we think this is more than a blip? This seems to me that this year we've sort of gone down this road of, oh, it's getting better. And then we found out, no, it wasn't. So is this that Jerome Powell says, yeah, I think I'm going to cut interest rates three times next year and suddenly it's happy talk? Or... I do realize the index has gone up, but I just want to know whether you think that this is still a very volatile kind of sentiment or whether you really think that the tide is, is turning. Sure. So as Jeff mentioned, you know, the the index had run up since the beginning of November. It's gone up about 27%, which was sort of significantly outpacing the broader markets. That was being driven by a fall in the treasury yields, the 10-year treasury yields. Those tend to kind of be predictive of where people think kind of interest rates are going. And so that was sort of the big mover then. And what made it seem a bit more real was that previous sort of ups and downs in the indices were still in a high rate sec. You know, there were still high rates. There were still high rates for the yields. And it was a situation where 
expectations, you know, through the year were that the economy was in a place where those interest rates, while they might have peaked, might be staying high. You know, there wasn't really an expectation that we were actually going to see a, you know, falling rate environment. So this announcement from Powell was unexpected, which is why we saw, you know, the XBI on the day it was announced. It was uh, trading flat for the entire day until 2 p.m. when the announcement came out and then it popped 5%. It was unexpected in that respect. And so that's a real clear shift in, in sentiment for the Fed, which is why people think this is more real. Now, of course, some of this expectation has to become kind of reality next year, right? Like, I think um, conversations I've had with folks say that this enthusiasm will probably go into the first quarter of the year. But once the feds meet again in March and they meet again in June, if there's any backtracking, if there's any sort of, you know, positioning where they think the feds maybe gotten a little bit out over their skis and they start to come back on those rate cuts, then this very much could be a false start and there could be another leg down for biotech. But if you see a rate cut in June or if you see them say that they still expect rate cuts to come at that March meeting, you know, I think that could potentially, um, help such forward. Of course, the fundamentals still have to work, right? I think we probably still need to see the M&A continue. We still need to see good clinical news. You know, none of that stuff is is irrelevant by any means, but you kind of need to have all of those things working in biotech with the backdrop of a falling rate environment. And yeah, if that's the case. So, so just a quick follow-up question then. I think, you know, the idea that M&A will or must continue is is probably a fairly solid one because People sort of feel that M&A will be strong, even if the market is pretty bad. That's sort of actually That's fostering right. an, an M&A kind of rich environment. And I completely agree with you that I hope we've entered an era where you will continue to require really solid clinical data and so on. But I do want to ask whether you think that things like the IPO window opening, is that all going to be contingent upon seeing an actual rate cut, meaning we probably wouldn't get it in the first quarter. What what are the actual indicators you're looking for in the markets as a sign of of it changing? Sure, sure. So I I think the first thing to look for will be the follow-ons. Follow-ons typically almost always come first. Obviously, given the, you know, the dearth of follow-ons that we saw this year, you know, they always obviously have been down. So I think there's some expectation that there'll be quite a few companies looking to raise early, you know, as we've maybe more historically seen in the past, right around JP Morgan, a little bit after JP Morgan, if those price well, if they perform well, especially if they perform well in the aftermarket, if they trade up and people are making money, I think that's a good sign and a good indicator that there could start to be some more openness to to IPO sort of in the first half of the year. But again, as I say, this is, you know, I think this is all sort of contingent on on what happens with the rates and sort of the realization of that. But I mean, just to give you a sense of of how real or not real it is, I asked everyone I spoke to, I asked them very point blank, you know, how confident are you that the XBI is going to outperform the broader markets next year? And almost across the board, the answer was sort of as confident as I have been since the bear market started, essentially. So it's a lot more optimistic than even it was sort of three months ago. One last thing, Stephen, let's just talk a little bit about the private markets, because we also surveyed a bunch of bankers and investors, private and public. And this was before the Fed's announcement. You know, one of the areas that really seemed to be a fair lack of confidence or enthusiasm was for new company formation and also for VCs to be able to raise new funds. 
Do you think that that landscape has changed much with this announcement as well? I expect it would change. The private markets tend to lag, you know, the public markets, obviously. So the reaction there is going to be different. You may still see, you know, what we'd obviously been hearing was, you know, flat round was the new up round, you know, on the private side. That may continue to be the case for a little bit. But I imagine if you start seeing their public holdings doing well, if you start seeing maybe some, you know, dare I say some crossovers start to happen again, that could change. But I wouldn't expect it to be as quick. All right. Well, we will certainly be watching this. Uh, eyes out for follow-ons. JP Morgan right around the corner. And uh, as Stephen said, past years, we've seen a bit of a follow-on frenzy right after JPM. It would be a nice start to the year. <laughs> okay. The American Society of Hematology meeting, ASH, has just wrapped. It's the last medical meeting that we hear at BioCentury follow each year. Um, Things start to quiet down, usually. Karen, you took a look at companies presenting data for next generation gene editors. What did you find? Well, with the recent approval of Cascavi, of course, it's a very exciting time for hemoglobinopathies and gene editing in that space. And so I took the opportunity of, you know, ASH, a meeting where a lot of hemoglobinopathy work is happening and where editing is sort of a live, active uh, modality to see what's kind of coming up behind this headline new product. And of course, the conversation has to include Editas. They have an AS-Cas12A enzyme, so different from the Cas9 in Vertex and CRISPR's product. And they have some promising, still early clinical data to show um, at this ASH, an update of what they showed earlier in the year with more patience and more time. So it was interesting digging into a conversation with them about why they think their editor could be best in class and their targeting strategy as well. But also looking even uh, behind that to see other groups presenting uh, at ASH, including two Chinese companies that have actually quite a bit of long-term data in their beta thalassemia population, I think because they have leveraged the investigator-initiated trial pathway there and promising data there as well. So it was an interesting opportunity to look at some of the groups coming even behind that with preclinical strategies, including a base editor and a prime editor across the hemoglobinopathy space. So a table of all that and, and a breakdown of all that is what's in the story. All right, Karen, tell us why Editus is confident that this strategy will be better? Well, their strategy differentiates twofold. One is on the target. That's kind of the most obvious way. So Kaskevi edits the BCL11A locus, where BCL11A is a transcriptional suppressor of fetal hemoglobin. And so by editing that, you're derepressing fetal hemoglobin, allowing it to be expressed and function as healthy hemoglobin in the patient. The Editas strategy is to edit the gamma globin locus itself, so where BCL11A binds. And, you know, I spoke with a physician from Boston Medical Center, and he thinks that's an exciting strategy because you're not disrupting BCL11A function overall. You're just targeting the gamma globin locus that you're looking to derepress. So there's that piece of it. Um, but it was also interesting speaking with the Editas CEO, Gilmore O'Neill, about the specifics of the Cas 
AES CAS-12A machinery that they're using and why it's different than CAS-9. And bear with me, it gets a little nerdy, but uh, the CAS-9 uses the five prime end of a guide RNA, and it uses longer guide RNAs that are 80 to 100 nucleotides long. Whereas AS-CAS-12A uses the three prime end and their guide RNAs are around 40 nucleotides long. And the reason he thinks that will make a difference for the accuracy of the editors is that when guide RNAs are synthesized in the lab, they are synthesized starting at the three prime end and it through a solid state process that gets more error prone the longer it is. So if your recognition depends on the three prime end and your guide RNA is shorter, the logic is there's less probability of error in your guides than if you're working at the five prime end of a longer guide. So, of course, it still remains to be seen whether this kind of theoretical mechanistic advantage plays out into greater safety or efficacy in the clinic. But it was interesting digging into those weeds with them. Karen, I I think that's really interesting. And I expect especially given the sort of validation, clinical validation and, you know, FDA approval with gene editing, we're going to continue to see a lot of innovation there. But on that front, I thought it was really interesting that what our colleague Lauren Martz covered also at ASH was this, you know, trend now towards improving on efficacy of drugs that are already on the market. So of the mechanisms where we've had proof of principle we're now seeing more and more innovation. Maybe you can talk about some of the ones that Lauren highlighted in there. Sure. Um, so I thought it was really interesting that she pointed out in her analysis of new targets coming up at ASH, how many of them were involved in protein degradation. And of course, we all know the protac space targeted proteolytic chimeras are booming and uh, you know we're watching that space intently. But it's interesting to see, I think, as as part of the enthusiasm in that, there's also been a lot of uncovering of protein degradation biology and sort of endogenous protein degradation regulators and how those could be levers for therapeutic effects. And so she looked at that and came up with some interesting targets, I think, in the context of AML and in the context of multiple myeloma as well, with the potential for synergies with existing therapies. So that was a pretty interesting line of innovation. And then on the sickle cell front, she also uncovered some new targets. And what was interesting there was that they all kind of converged around regulating fetal hemoglobin, so gamma globin expression. There was a presentation, I think, from folks at Novartis identifying this target whiz that's involved in gamma globin expression, but there were some other ones as well. So definitely check out Lauren's story for a deep dive on the target side of uh, what was uncovered at ASH, both for cancer and for hemoglobinopathies. Yep, both up on uh, biocentury.com. Alrighty, it's our last podcast of the year. And around this time each year, we like to take a look back at the previous 12 or so months and you know pick a few highlights uh we all or or lowlights as the case may be and we also like to make some predictions for the new year now i'm going to start with steven as steven uh last year his prediction for 2023 was obesity getting hot and well it's it's gotten pretty hot so steven 
highlights from this year and uh, maybe a prediction for next year. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. And, and you just touched on it. Um, it was uh, really, you know, the year of obesity. Um, I think I wrote a story entitled The Year of Obesity back in 2020. So maybe it was a couple of years uh, too early there. But I mean, obviously, the commercial success that we've seen from the GLP-1s and the way that they've kind of pushed other large biopharmas like AstraZeneca or Roche to kind of make big bets to try and kind of move in on this space, I think has just been pretty extraordinary to watch. And, and frankly, was even surprised me at the rate at which it sort of expanded and, and grew as a, I guess, as a cultural almost phenomenon, um, even caught me off guard. So, you know, just, I think it'll be interesting to see how their challenges to the leaders, Eli Lilly and Nova Nordis sort of, sort of unfold uh, in, in, in the next year or two. And that's what I guess sort of looking forward my expectation is that, you know, obesity is going to remain hot, um, but it's going to start to evolve into a combination sort of strategy uh, space. So it'll be interesting to see how that efficacy bar gets raised as we see some of these new combination strategies. And equally, as sort of the shift in the focus there sort of shifts to quality weight loss over quantity, I think is going to be another key component of kind of the next wave of therapeutics there. All right. Dealing with the hot hand, Mr. Hansen. Just don't trust his uh, NFL American <laughs> football picks. Karen, uh, what was your highlight from this past year? Well, I would be remiss not to point out the progress with radio pharmaceuticals. This was something where I did a deep dive towards the end of this year. And seeing the, the news as well highlights that this is still a space where Billion dollar plus deals are happening um, with the Point acquisition by Eli Lilly. And of course, a quick aside on Point, they actually had some phase three data come out today for their PSMA targeted lutetium 177 compound. It met the primary endpoint, fell short of investor expectations, and a bit short of some Novartis data in a similar setting. And you can read about that in uh, analysis we'll have out today. But one of the things that also really stood out from my analysis was that the alpha emitters, it used to be that there was, you know, three producers in the world for actinium-225, and it was this kind of scarce place to operate in. And now we're seeing that that's really becoming a mainstream part of company strategies. And so that is, a, it's a, I would say for 2023, the space is really maturing and one to watch into the coming year. But, you know, for 2024 predictions, I think it'll be really interesting to watch for innovation on innovation, as we like to call it, in the gene editing space. And I would particularly look to China as a source for that. We've seen that with ADCs, and my colleagues have captured that quite well this year. But it was interesting to see, you know, just even in these ASH abstracts, how with the IIT pathway, Chinese companies have the potential to get started earlier and cheaper on studies with new modalities, including gene editing, and potentially have some pretty impactful data. So I think new company formation in that space and particularly coming out of China would be one to watch. Excellent. All right. Well, let's turn to our editor in chief to bring us home. All right. Well, fortunately, you had this very upbeat input from Karen and Stephen to set the stage. I don't really need to talk about how brutal this has been in terms of capital markets this year. Every biotech has lived that. And to some degree, I just hope that the scars there or the memories of that, people talk a lot about discipline. And I hope that, you know, people sort of remember what led to this to some degree and are able to 
maintain high standards as they go forward. But I I have to I have to bring us down to earth. First of all, my colleague, our colleague, sorry, Steve Usden, who's not on this, and I know he'd be saying this if he were. So I really want to call you to a really important piece that he just wrote called Biotech's Public Policy Pillars Are Crumbling. And, you know, he talks about some very serious threats that are not existential to our biotech ecosystem, but are really important and can sort of lead to the erosion of some of the value that it provides. And, and you know, a couple of them, access to innovation isn't equitable. I think there's a coming out of COVID, there is a distrust in science that I think hurts us. And policymakers using basic science funding as a tool to lower drug prices. The Inflation Reduction Act has got some very estimable goals with some very problematic executions for our industry. And then, of course, actions by the FTC. So that's an important context that people need to read and not throw their hands up that there's nothing that they can do about it. There's a lot, actually, that Biopharma can do about it. Some of it is seeds that it sowed itself with pricing strategies. And some of it is maybe just assuming that everybody would, you know, continue to believe that science is strong and value-add. And I think that that case needs to be made every single day. And then on a personal note, and some things I've written on a personal note on, on LinkedIn, but this one really does relate to our industry. I'm very, very concerned about what's going on in academia. Anti-Semitism is very clearly a problem. And I think it's also a tip of the iceberg where what we're really seeing is an erosion of standards there. And that is not only the breeding ground for the future of the industry, those people will go out and they'll become the next scientists and the next investors and the next policymakers. But it's also where innovation comes from. And if you can't believe that those are environments that you can question everything, that you can feel free to come up with new ideas and new ways of doing things, and that it's a culture that actually promotes discussion rather than quenches it or quenches it, then we're really in a trouble. We're really in trouble. So I'm very concerned about that. I really ask Jeff to end this with a slightly more positive note, but I don't think that it is right for us to ignore the very, very real things that are going on around us. Well, in, important words there, Simone. And, uh, you know, it's it's a rallying cry. Definitely uh, go onto our website, read Steve Usden's piece. There's something that everyone in the biopharma industry should heed this call. Time for actions now. And let's go back to what Stephen was saying about uh, some of those positive signs in the market. Let's hope that that can... Uh, bring some optimism back to the industry. But as Simone is saying, there's a lot of work to be done. Thank you for tuning in to BioCentury this week, this past year. We appreciate you lending us your ear and we look forward to uh, many more good episodes in the coming year. I wish everyone a very happy new year. Hopefully you get to spend a little time with your family, your loved ones at this time of year. And we will catch you with our first episode of the year, uh, right around J.P. Morgan time. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for BioCentury this week. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, 
innovate and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. Thanks for tuning in.